Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm John McEnroe. I'm Bjorn Borg. This is Martina Navratilova. I'm Mats Wilander. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. And you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. Well, hello and welcome to The Tennis Podcast, brought to you in association with The Telegraph and with Eurosport. My name is David Law, a commentator for BBC Radio 5 Live and for BT Sport. We have been producing tennis podcasts for the last six years nearly now. May is our anniversary and we're up to episode 402. This one doesn't have Catherine Whitaker on because she is on holiday at the moment. She's back tomorrow and she'll be back with us on Tennis Podcast next week. But we do have a very special guest and that is Simon Briggs, tennis correspondent from The Telegraph, our partners, who is going to join me. He's been in Monte Carlo. He's been in Miami. We're going to be talking about Monte Carlo, Nadal's win because he's won an 11th title in Monte Carlo. We're going to talk about the uh, the Ferrari after Jared Donaldson got in the face of an umpire. We're going to be talking about Novak Djokovic and Andre Agassi's split and Djokovic's uh, reconnection with uh, Marion Vider and the results that he's had since uh, joining back up with him. We'll talk about the Fed Cup, of course, uh, the victories for the Czech Republic and the United States, and Japan beating Great Britain yesterday, or earlier today as I speak to you, in fact. And uh, we'll we'll get Simon's view on all of that. We'll be talking about Caroline Wozniacki. We'll have a chat about Andy Murray. We'll talk about real tennis Real tennis, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a different sport, uh, and we've got plenty more to, to talk to Simon about. So, hello Simon, how are you doing? We haven't had you on the tennis podcast for a while. Yeah, good, thanks. Uh, just going to come back from Monte Carlo this week, uh, getting ready for Glasgow, and uh, Dan Evans' comeback. Yeah. And some, and some are even claiming Andy Murray's comeback, but I'm sure we'll get to that. And, uh, and no, I'm not convinced, <laughs> before you ask. No. You're not convinced. Um, the story of Monte Carlo, well, first and foremost, is that Rafael Nadal has won it again, an eleventh time. And I have—I mean, I haven't checked the statistics on this, but this felt more one-sided than it has ever been in terms of being a stroll to the title. I mean, the the statistic is that he's won his last thirty-six sets on clay, and he hasn't done worse than winning a, a set 6-4 in all that time and he's averaged two games lost per set in 36 that that basically is the whole of the French Open and the whole of Monte Carlo and the whole of the Davis Cup tie against uh, Germany it, it's it's incredible really on 
when you talk about it like that and yet it doesn't feel incredible it just it now feels normal to me don't you yeah well he hasn't lost on clay since rome last year uh, against dominic team and perhaps the the most uh, alarming result of the last week for anyone who you know hopes to compete with him would be the match he played against team in the quarter final in monte carlo where he what won what the the first nine games and have had people scrabbling around to see you know precedents for double bagels uh, and this is the guy on the other side of the net who is supposed to be the next clay court master uh, the guy who had already taken novak djokovic out and it was just a, a complete uh, it was complete destruction and that's i mean Rafa wasn't quite as good as that in the semi-final, but even even playing a little bit erratically against Dimitrov, he still, as you say, didn't get uh, extended too far in that one either. So he's beaten Kane Shikori today in the final, uh, and uh, it feels like normal service has been re- resumed. We, we, we've heard in the past uh, somebody you and I both know from the tennis tour, Dave Samuel, talk about a coach talk about locker room power, and. I'm a believer in that. I, I I think there's a lot to that. And I can't imagine, I can't think of anybody who's ever had more locker room power right now than Nadal on the clay court. Maybe Djokovic a few years ago, maybe Federer in the mid-2000s. But I'm not even sure that they rival him in terms of just dominance because obviously it's a specific to one surface, isn't it? It's clay. But how do you beat the guy? Who can beat the guy? Do you think anybody, if he is fit, can beat the guy? Well, clearly Novak Djokovic, at his best, um, was actually achieving some level of ascendance over Nadal uh, for a period. Uh, the the return to the, to the monopoly, which we're seeing now, is that, to some extent a consequence of Djokovic's fading of power. So without him to challenge Rafa, it feels as if um, clay tennis is, is perhaps the hardest result, the hardest surface, sorry, on which to, to achieve a surprise result. Um, and it's a very physical form of the sport. And, uh, no one seems to be able to compete with the combination of ferocity, physicality, and, and tactical mastery that Rafa has got. Mind you, there was one interesting conversation that cropped up on Twitter, which I think you were involved in during the week, when uh, Craig O'Shaughnessy, um, the analyst and coach, suggested that somebody should try an underarm serve because Rafa is standing for, to receive the serve so far back that he's, if, if you're behind the court, you almost can't see him if you're sitting in the stands. Um, and that's become his strategy because he, he, he loves to have time to, to have, take a full swing at the ball. Uh, and there was a debate about whether uh, Mark Petchy, for instance, suggested that that would have been against the spirit of the game to throw in an unannounced underarm serve against Rafa for tactical reasons. I don't see that at all. I think that would be a perfectly legitimate tactic and, in fact, fascinating and would disrupt the way that he is playing at the moment. Mm, yeah, I, I, I was involved in that conversation. I mean, a couple of things sprung to mind for me is, the first one is, well, you can only really do that once, can't you? I mean, you know, yes, it might win you a point, but once you've 
thrown in your underarm serve, it's no longer a surprise tactic, is it? I mean, well, I, I, or are you going to do it every other, every fourth serve? Well, I think the question is, would you be able to adjust his, his service return position with it? Uh, I mean, you have to have to obviously maybe be capable of landing it consistently very short. Um, but if you're if you're prepared to be going up against Rafa, if, you, if, you're, if you're preparing to go up against Rafa, feeling that, that you might get a chance to play him in, in one of these clay court events, if you're you know, a reasonably successful uh, clay court player who, who might take him on, then why not prepare a, a, a tactic like that to try and make him stand further forward and just knock him out of his um, incredibly consistent and successful pattern? Mm. The, 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 the subject of, of whether it is, you know, whether it's fair game to, to throw that in came about partially because uh, aside from, from the underarm serve discussion, the, one of the talking points that had come up over the week is, is the quite remarkable reaction of Jared Donaldson during a match uh, to an overall that, that he, I think Arno Gabash, the, the umpire, had stepped in and, and, and called something that, that Donaldson didn't like. And he said, there's no, I can't see a mark. And Donaldson was adamant that there was a mark to the point of getting in Gabash's face in a, I, I would describe it as an uncomfortable way. Because and I, and I I should also say I've met Jared Donaldson and, and at Queens and found him to be a, a lovely lad you know the most unassuming guy you could imagine I could, when you first when you meet him when you talk to him you can't you can't think is this the same guy but he he saw red mist didn't he at that particular point and it was what what are you doing you can't at least I thought at the time you can't do that um, now Mark had, had actually Mark Petchy had said on Twitter well. Actually, the, the, there are eyeballs watching this because of the, the reaction of Gerald Donaldson to this. It's, it's making the headlines. It's making the news. Do we want to sanitise the sport so much that people don't take any notice of it anymore? Um, we would have lost John McEnroe if we were too down on all this stuff. What, what's your view? Before we get to Nadal again, because I've still got more stuff to ask about him. <laughs> uh, well, it was quite physical, wasn't it? The... Um... The level of intimidation. Uh, McEnroe used to mouth off at umpires non-stop, but uh, Donaldson moved aggressively into Gabas's physical space, partly because it was, you know, a clay court situation in which the umpire traditionally comes down to look at the mark. Um, one inconsistency here is the fact that Hawkeye isn't used on clay, which it could be. I think there was a interesting piece that Chris Clary wrote in the New York Times about that. Um, it's it's almost seen as a point of difference by the French Open and and sort of clay court tennis as a whole that, that they don't have Hawkeye and that they use the, the marks. But um, it's not always easy at the end of a set to work out which one's which. Um, having said that, it just felt like Donaldson's red mist had, had really been um, just taking taking them over to an unacceptable level. I think. And I, everyone said to me that they were shocked because it was so out of character. But the, the, the $5,000 fine did seem a little of, of, a, of a gentle slap over the wrist when you consider that he was making about three times as much as that from his um, his first-round defeat. Mm, yeah, and I think Mark's... Uh, the, the, the strand we're drawing between the, 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 the Gerald Donaldson thing and the underarm serve is that as you said, Mark was um, was 
feeling that the underarm serve wasn't fair game. And yet, actually, I think you made the point that it, it kind of adds some intrigue, adds some interest that, that this is chucked in. But it seemed to be that the, the line he was drawing was between the fact that with Donaldson, it was heat of the moment and out of absolute desperation at the situation and he just lost his rag as opposed to being premeditated. Yeah, he was talking about hot blood and cold blood, but he also admitted that, that he had um, had it drummed into him from an early age that the underarm serve was sort of cowardly and, and not an honourable tactic. Um, and I just think that that happens to be something which, you know, is, is quite a subjective judgment. And I just don't, don't see what um, is wrong with doing something surprising, with using the full sort of physical shape of the court in a sense if you if you're prepared to to, to almost play the drop serve mm. um once in a while i mean we just, it's just not something we see ever and and there's no reason to do it in most situations but it's just this particular um returning position that rafa has, has increasingly gone to uh, in recent seasons where he's just loving that extra time because he's putting so much um weight on his returns that he can get away with standing further back Mm. Um, and just I, just I cannot see anything wrong with trying to disrupt his his tactics when they're so successful. <laughs> no, uh, and I have to say, I mean, you, neither you or I are are professional tennis players or anything close. Although we have shared a court once, and uh, and it was it was pretty spectacular for about a sort of four second moment where you and I both connected cleanly with the strings. The rest of the day, it was awful. The um, the fact is though that. I mean, I've seen it used by uh, Michael Chang against Ivan Lendl, admittedly when he was cramping. Uh, it was used, and it was jeered, incidentally, when Martina Hingis used it once uh, against Steffi Graf. I personally have no problem with it at all. Uh, again, I'm not a player, so I maybe I don't understand the, that subject of honour as much uh, that, that Mark alluded to, but, but I, I think it's, it's fair game. Unless, unless you want to bring in what constitutes a serve the way that bowling and cricket has a, a sort of overarm straight arm to delivery and you can't throw it then then i yeah fair enough as far as i'm concerned anyway I don't, I don't think that there's any danger of it replacing the overarm serve it's just in this very specific um position that rafa's adopting it seems to me to be a valid tactical response mm. yeah no i can see the, see the point there now on the subject of nadal who do you think is the most likely if if everybody's fit if nadal's fit and nothing major happens that he's not injured and there's there's not some incredible thing happened to the tournament that it's not played who who's the best chance of him not winning an 11th french open do you think i mean possibly a, a lightning strike um otherwise um if team woke up one day um, inspired by some sort of uh, divine spirit. Uh, I mean, one person, I, I don't feel like I've ever watched much of Del Potro on clay. I don't feel like I've seen much of him on that surface. Mm. I don't know why. I haven't checked his results, so um, I don't know what his percentages are. Um, well, he's made he's, a semi at the French in the past, but he's never yeah, made the he's, final. He's obviously been outside of Roger and Rafa, he's been the best player so far this season. So um, I would have thought that perhaps 
he might have the capacity to do something extraordinary again if he was just happened to, to wake up one one day in in the, in the most phenomenal um, form of his life. But there's just something so relentless and so um, unstoppable about Ndal on the surface that you almost feel like uh, we should be. I think Caroline Wozniacki actually we we spoke to her in, in Monte Carlo and she said. You know, I quite fancy myself for the French Open. It's not like the men's where they should just give it to Rafa and we should all go for a coffee. <laughs> That's quite a good line. Um, the uh, I, I take your point. I think that the point about Del Potro is you, you, it's not just you haven't got to just do it for a set. You've got to do it for three somehow. And and that relentlessness that he's able to produce is so tough to match. On Twitter at tennis podcast, Scorpio sixteen forty one says Djokovic at his best at a hundred percent could do it. And and let's face it, he's beaten him in straight sets at the French Open just three years ago. Now I I think it was a very different Nadal at that point. He he was undergoing that real crisis of confidence we also had Djokovic at a very different level to what he is now but assuming he gets back to that that's what the that's what it would take isn't it to to really give anybody I think a chance of beating a fully fit and informed Nadal and and as you say for a while he had the kryptonite to beat Superman and and it was working many times that he had a hold over that that rivalry I don't think um, Rafa's conf- co- uh, crisis of confidence was any um, coincidence. I think it was it was purely uh, uh, brought on him by by the level Novak was playing at and the way in which Novak used his backhand oh, to nullify to nullify the um, the Rafa forehand and 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 to make him reassess what he what his game plan was because he he almost didn't have to think, did he? Most of the time, he had just went out there and and pretty much reproduced the same patterns, and he had to. He had to go back to the drawing board a little bit because the quality of Novak's double-handed backhand just made him, um, well, it forced him into, into into new ideas. So the thing about Novak at the moment, I, I watched him in um, Monte Carlo. Obviously, his, I thought his ball striking was pretty good. I just don't think that physically he's he's all that close to the level he was at. If you think about how what an Iron Man he was when he was. Um, the best player in the world for for wait he was. For about five years, wasn't he? He was consistently probably uh, the leading tennis player. Um, if you think the, the, the physicality he was able to de- deploy time after time in that period, it just doesn't seem to be with him at the moment. He he took a set off Dominic's team, um, but he sort of faded as that match went on. And it feels increasingly like a really physical battle when you watch clay court tennis in particular, more than the other surfaces. I just feel like he doesn't have that um, reservoir of tough matches of, of conditioning to fall back on at the moment that he will be able to to put enough performances together to get deep into the French Open and, and to beat Rafa. Mm, yeah, uh, Adam says Vavrinka. Well, he's as you just don't think he's fit enough personally. Perhaps Verev. He also adds Delpo Isner. Anyone who can annihilate the ball. Well, yeah, I, I mean I agree, but the problem is, can you do it? long for long enough jack rossiter mm. munley says i think del potra has the best chance i'd follow him closely with a fully fit and dialed in kyrios and team well kyrios has just pulled out of a couple of events uh, with his elbow problem uh, but over five sets it is hard to imagine anyone beating him right now and i think well, that we could agree I'm with taking that. a set 
Yeah. I mean, well, <laughs> that's, a, that's the problem, isn't it? It, it is <laughs> frightening many, what he's you, doing. How many did he lose during the French Open last year? Well, he didn't lose a set last year, exactly. and, and he didn't lose a set, as I said, worse than 6-4. Incidentally, Djokovic has just entered Barcelona, Simon, which, I mean, he hasn't played there for 12 years. I personally like the fact that he's doing that. I mean, he might struggle, I think, there at that tournament. It's it's, it's such a sort of hot and high-bouncing type of surface, it always seems to me, in a real clay court tournament, that one. And and I'm, I think it might be a struggle for him. It's not like Rome, I think, and, and, and some of the others where where I think he, he enjoys it, specifically playing under the lights and so forth. Um, but I like the fact that he's doing it, Djokovic. I think it, it tells me that he's serious. Do you know what I mean? Well, certainly he's back with Marion Vider, and that's um, almost like sort of watching a, a sort of a pot plant that's, that's that's drying up, have a bit of a bit of a, a water applied, and, and and suddenly turn green again because he he does seem refreshed um, by that reunion. It feels like the Agassi uh, flirtation did turn out to be a bit fanciful in the end. There wasn't enough commitment from either of them. Didn't seem, didn't seem to be enough. Um, mutual understanding uh, and um, you know Vida made him to quite a large extent he he took a he took an incredibly um, talented guy who, who had absolutely the right stuff and he just directed it with such consistency and insight that, that he he created as I say the man who who was the best player in the world pretty much from 2011 to 2016 I would say um, and you know when you give something like that up and you see where you are without it it makes you realize what you're missing out on i think and and that's a good position for novak to be in to have seen the world without marion vida and and to, to realize how much he means to him yeah I can believe that. Just just finally on Nadal, who who himself goes to Barcelona and he's trying for an 11th Barcelona title and an 11th uh, French Open title. Is it boring at the moment on clay with him around? Do do you feel? I mean, do you go to these tournaments and and are you a little bit turned off by by what is effectively a procession to the title. I mean, I feel I feel it's not fair on him in a way because he knows that he has to keep producing incredible levels and concentration and training in order to to reach that level. But do you do you turn up and talk to your desk and 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 do you get enthusiasm for them from them about these tournaments, given how one sided it is right now? Well, let's be honest. I mean, the most interesting thing about Monte Carlo wasn't uh, Nadal, probably. It was Novak, wasn't it? I think that was the most interesting storyline. Um, and yes, he is predictable. I mean, I, th- I think watching Rafa on clay is still a hugely Im- invigorating experience. And I, and I I still love the physicality he brings to it and, and the, the sense of, of power and, and domination and, and the sort of red-bloodedness of it all. I, I still get a kick out of watching that. But it certainly means that conversations have have um, <laughs> sort of less ingredients to, to develop uh, because, as, as, as Caroline Bosniaki said, there is a sense of futility about uh, <laughs> some of these events when he's playing as well as he is right now. Yeah, it is a bit of a shame, isn't it, that we're not getting to see 
Federer against him in one of these clay court tournaments, given how dominant Federer has been in the head-to-head. I mean, I'm, uh, I dare say it would be pretty one-sided for Nadal, but it's a shame mm. that we don't get to see it, even though I do understand yeah, no, why Federer is doing what he's doing. That'd be exciting, but I mean, uh, you know, the, the whole the whole period between um, the whole the last three years in which uh, Novak came in and won one, Stam came in and won one, and and Rafa then had to come back. They were pretty exciting. Um, you know, there's nothing, nothing in sport quite like a guy who or a team. You know, you see it you see it in team sports as well. Somebody or some team that has dominated for a long period and then has to reaffirm what made them great that's a fantastic thing to see but but i think we always almost feel like we've gone through that cycle now and we come out the other side to where we're, we're back um watching what feels like they're like reruns of, of the late 2000s yes no here we are uh now simon fed cup uh, that's been taking place over the weekend. The final has been decided with Czech Republic beating Germany away from home 4-1. Petra Kvitova was in just the most devastating form. She's absolutely thrashed both Yulia Gerges and Angelique Kerber in Stuttgart to, to help her Czech Republic to that 4-1 win. And the Czech Republic will face the United States, who haven't been in the final for quite a while. Uh, Sloan Stevens and Coco Vandewey on their team, and they beat France away from home. So Czech Republic against the United States, and I dare say that will be a really interesting final at the end of the year. Our attentions, Simon, inevitably from a British perspective, have focused on the World Group 2 playoff that Britain have been playing in Japan over the last two days. They were trying to get to the World Group for the first time since 1993, 25 years ago. They got very, very close. It went to two all. Johanna Konta got a great win over Naomi Osaka today as we speak to you. She won in straight sets. I think in the eyes of many, it was the best performance she's produced probably since Wimbledon last year. Um, and that gave Britain a 2-1 advantage. Japan then levelled it up at 2 all when Heather Watson was beaten by Kakuri Nara, who was training 6-3 to Watson in the, the first set tie-break. So Watson had three set points. She didn't take them, and she lost the match in straight sets in the end. Then the doubles came around. Britain won the first set. They were one set away and they lost in three. So Japan win 3-2, and Britain are destined for another year in the Euro-African zone, aren't they? So that means it's at least 2020 before Britain will get into the world group and play any sort of tie at that sort of level. I mean, what's your, what's your takeaway from it, Simon? Is it Obviously, from a British perspective, it's disappointment. Do you... Do you think it's disappointment in terms of what they've produced or do you think it's just disappointment that they were unlucky? Or what, what, is your, what is your view? Well, it's kind of soul-destroying, really, when you uh, look at the sequence of, of draws that they've had. And uh, this was the closest that they've been. Uh, looking back at the other three um, World Group 2 playoffs they've had, they've, they've always lost the single 3-1. So this, they actually squared it at two all. Um but you know, it was it was there. It, it, it was they had it in their grasp, and all credit to Johanna Conta, who I thought um, put on a fantastic show, and you know the, the person who will probably feel most 
uh, you know, upset might be Heather Watson because she had a chance in the singles. Uh, she probably was uh, erratic at times in the doubles. And it's just fed into that narrative that she's had of, of increasing a struggle on the tour. Um, she hasn't won a match, what, since um, before Australia? It's certainly been a while on the tour. She she did pretty well in the um, Estonian Fed Cup uh, zonal group. But otherwise, it's been a bleak season. And, and you can see that, really, in the sense of a woman whose confidence has completely leaked away. And that's why she wasn't, I guess, able to close the opportunities that she had. And that's the team has suffered for it. Yeah, they have. Uh, do you feel in any way that, I mean, that there was a situation that Britain went into her singles leading 2-1. Um, they picked Gabby Taylor and Kjeltervang had picked Gabby Taylor, who has had some very good results recently and is up and coming, albeit at a much lower level. And she's ranked at around about 170 in the world right now. Do you think there was, would you have made any case before those final two rubbers of either picking Gabby Taylor for the singles or picking Anna Smith for the doubles? Um, no, I, I don't think uh, I would because it was such a massive stage for these, those people to, to come in. I, I would have trusted Watson, who despite her struggles has an excellent Fed Cup record overall. And again, in the doubles, they had real chances, didn't they? They were uh, comfortably the best team in the first set. <sighs> had that bizarre swing against them in the second where they lost five games in a row then came back into it um it just didn't quite happen but i i i don't necessarily feel i think it's it's very easy to to look at the results and and say that kiyotomon got her selection wrong i don't necessarily feel that anybody else would have done any better and it's it's a, always a great truism of of team sport that uh, when a team is struggling um the people on the bench suddenly become well beaters yes well i I have to say i i I believe she made made the right call given what she had at her disposal and uh, and it didn't work out um but i I wouldn't have done anything different either um so yeah i mean that the problem is for britain is that they just can't seem to make any headway in the fed cup because of the the system for a start It, it just means that you're you're dawdling around in in that group again next year and you've got to produce in order to to get another playoff and and now of course um we don't exactly know what's going to come of the the fed cup anyway do we i mean there's talk of it expanding to a 16 team um competition a world group of 16 rather than two world groups world group one and two of eight teams apiece which is an incredibly unwieldy and complicated and difficult to understand system and there's also the potential for something similar to happen that is happening with the Davis Cup, or at least being proposed by the ITF at the moment. And what do you make of all that? Well, let's just, on Britain, for one thing, I mean, they have been furiously unlucky. I mean, you, you've got a 1-in-16 shot of all four of, the, of the, those ties being away. Um, and last year, particularly, they were at their best because Heather was in better form. Jana Conta was at a highest ranking and to, to get Romania away on clay against Simona Halep 
and and all the all the uh, hijinks that ensued was just ferociously unlucky. So um, it's not so much the system that, that's that's hurt them; it, uh, it's more the luck of the of the dice has been horrendous. Um, but clearly, you don't get many opportunities, I and mean, that's one of the complaints that Judy Murray made as she left the job was that if you if you do miss out in the zonal qualifiers, for instance, then you don't play again all year. Um, in terms of the Fed Cup, well, it's certainly complicated and could do with streamlining the Davis Cup proposals. Um, they're not necessarily all that relevant in the sense that Cosmos, the investment group who've come in to try and um, sex up the, the Davis Cup, they're, they're probably thinking that Fed Cup isn't as marketable. Certainly it's not all that high profile uh, among the people that that I sort of speak to, the Davis Cup has got a higher profile just, just historically. It's not right that it should be that way, but there certainly is an element of, of, of sorry, what's going on again with this tournament? Well, and that's that's the problem that they've created for themselves to a large degree, though, isn't it? By having the system that they've got and all the more reason to try and get money in. I mean, I suppose the, the argument is from, an, you know, from the outside looking in is, well, maybe the ITF should just be making it a condition that it is across the board, this sort of investment before saying yes to the Davis Cup um, injection. Yes, but you got to remember that the, the ITF aren't particularly the, the the guys with the power in that relationship. You know, I mean, Cosmos are the ones with the with the cash. Um, ITF have been in a, in a weak position, not even able to get male players, uh, the, the the best male players, to regularly turn out in Davis Cup. So, uh, the, the the politics and the finances are not necessarily uh, always um, as neat. As anyone would like. I mean, yeah, but they don't what, have to say yes, do they? They don't have to say yes to the investment unless uh, they're happy with the terms themselves. Uh, well, they have boxed themselves into into something of a corner, haven't they? With with that big um, announcement uh, a couple of months ago, which set the whole uh, ball rolling. Um, if they suddenly turn Cosmos away, having promised all this stuff to their constituents, it's politically quite. Tricky. I mean, the whole thing is is such a mess that I'm not I'm not sure that we really have the scope to kind of get into it mm, yeah. um, at this minute. I mean, the, the complexity of it um, is it, just mind bending when you think of the, the number of different players there are, the number of different uh, national organisations that have yet to declare what they think, um, and also even on a day to day basis, from what I hear, it's almost like the the whole um, debate. Is is fluid, mm. you know. That there, there are meetings going on all the time, there are conversations going on all the time. The players, um, are kind of, <laughs> even Rafa started out being very positive about Cosmos, and then sort of rode it back a little bit in Monte Carlo last week, while still still saying that you know, it's a good thing to try new things. It, the whole thing is just such a a mess. Ideally, if you're going to have a week, uh, the, the, the Tennis World Cup at the end of the season, then you should have men and women together. That, that would be the best thing. Yeah. Uh, it, and a, a world team competition that involved men and women would be a fantastic new addition to the calendar and wouldn't necessarily eclipse Davis Cup or Fed Cup. Yeah, no, I agree but, with but, you. But, but, but to, to arrange something like that in a sport which has... I like to say seven governing bodies, but all, but I keep on getting, being shouted down by the ATP and, and other people on this until it's actually only 
three governing bodies and seven stakeholders, because the four grandstanders are technically stakeholders, not governing bodies. But the point is that it's, it's a, as I wrote the other day, it's, um, it's a many-headed hydra, but the difference between tennis and a hydra is that the heads are actually actively attacking each other all the time. What a fabulous image. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. Just a, a few final points, uh, Simon. We'll, we'll take you away from the Davies Cup and the Fed Cup now because I agree with you. That's a, that's a new, the separate show that we're going to have to get you in on uh, in the future. Um, I'm not sure it's worth doing until things have crystallised a bit more. No, well, say, August. Like you, 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 you put it out on a Monday and by Tuesday it's pretty much been overtaken by events. Uh, August is when we'll find out how uh, those proposals have been voted upon. So we'll bring that to you when it happens. You've been in, as well as Monte Carlo, you were in Miami, Simon. There was the whole Caroline Wozniacki story kicking off where uh, where she um, tweeted about abuse that she and her family had received in the crowd during a match against Monica Puig. Then we had the James Blake statement, uh, which was um, fairly cool and uh, <laughs> un- unusually so, I-, I thought, for something that he put his name to, although it certainly didn't sound like him to me, as I said on the show a couple <laughs> of weeks ago. Um, and, uh, and then you've been, I think, speaking to Caroline Wozniacki in, in Monte Carlo, haven't you? Yes, and she was talking in terms of possibly boycotting Miami in the future in the way that Serena Williams boycotted Indian Wells for many years, and Venus Williams too. Um, and that's an interesting development. The uh, The press release that Blake put out was quite extraordinary. And I mean, I actually, uh, somebody rep- replied to me on Twitter, uh, a rival podcast, um, and had a little bit of an interview with James Blake in which he put his position across. And you know, he, when, he, when, he, when he was actually speaking to them, uh, he sounded, you know, uh, like he was. It sounded reasonable. like James he, Blake. He, he sounded reasonable, but then you look at the wording, and there was there was a sentence in it that said, "Personally, I don't believe that any tennis player should have to endure abuse on court." It's like, <laughs> what? Is that like a personal view? I mean, it's just like, 
that's obviously axiomatic, isn't it? You don't you don't have to to, to bring in your own your own um, <laughs> personal position for something as basic as that. So the whole thing was was poorly handled at best, and they 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 should back down and grovel a bit because you know Wozniacki is a is a big figure in the sport. She's not somebody who's going to make this kind of stuff up, and and she deserves to have. Uh, respect shown to her yeah and, and actually i heard that interview that you referenced uh, I, I will name check the podcast it's called the tennis nerd podcast what a fantastic name um and uh, they did do an interview with james blake in which he sounded like james blake surprisingly yes, enough, because it was reasonable. him yeah mm. and and and, it, and as i said a couple of weeks ago what a shame it is that we didn't get to hear that james blake the real Ooh. one um giving you a fulsome view of his own at the time to to try to clear it all up um but uh yeah i agree with you they need to get together now and uh, and and try and sort it out if they've you know if they want to move it forwards anyway that's uh, that's caroline wozniacki and um a couple of other things i i an interesting piece written by mike dixon i, I saw the other day on wimbledon expansion plans um in which he, i think he talked about uh, intentions to perhaps build on the golf club course nearby and eventually managed to expand Wimbledon I suppose that that's got to happen eventually hasn't it Simon if Wimbledon are to keep evolving well I mean they have they have the um the lease already from 2041 isn't that right yeah that's it and they, um, it's, it's a question of whether they're going to bring it forwards yes. uh, I think uh, this particular story or not uh, but they would have to pay obviously uh, quite a significant fee I imagine to be able to do that um but that's well, I'm not sure I'm not sure there is any fee that will get it done because when you look at the um small print they need a three-quarter majority of members and there's a lot of people who are members of that golf club who who probably don't need the money no. <laughs> and and uh, and you know who who uh, who probably feel like that they they're determined to get their 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 youth out of that uh, that space before 2041 mm. and uh, a couple of uh, pieces that you've written over the last uh, couple of weeks one is uh, you wrote i think it was yesterday or the day before about the the real tennis match um, that is due to take yes. place at the Queen's Club, home of the Fever Tree Championships. <laughs> you, 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 you actually were. I think you, did you speak to or meet the the chap who's playing? Yes. And tell us yeah, about absolutely. him. Well, I met both the the, the, the guys uh, who I described as, as the Federer and, and Nadal of of real tennis. Um, Rob Fay, he is forty nine. That that was my uh, way into the piece. The fact that he's older than me and has whiter hair than me, which was a, a source of uh, absolutely unconfined joy. <laughs> Uh, when, when, I, when I met him and, and, and was amazed that this guy is, is still a, such an elite player um, at, at an age when some people are kind of uh, moved on to their cocoa. So um, I watched him train. It was absolutely spectacular. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's a brilliant sport. It, it is a nightmare to explain. Um, I, th- I think for a, lo- uh, for a lot of people as well, the, the, the sheer name of it. I mean, there's a lot of people. You and I have both been to the Queen's Club. We've both seen what the real tennis court looks like. It's like it's like an, an, a massive, long squash court or something, isn't it? But there's a net in between. There's walls all the side. They belt the ball around the sides, and it goes over and around. And, well, it's an irregular shape. And yeah. then there's, a, there's a sloping roof on two sides. Um uh, or even three sides, I can't remember. Uh, I, mean, I have actually played it once. I, play, I played a real tennis match against Patrick Kidd, the uh, political sketch writer of the Times. Um, and it was brilliant fun. Um, and the ball's really to, heavy, to, isn't it? 
Yes, it's, 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 there's an element to which it's almost more like playing cricket because there's no rubber in the ball, so it doesn't bounce very much. It's actually, I think it's a leather exterior around a cloth interior, something like that. Um, so you have to get down pretty low. You, you, you never use topspin. You, you, you cut every ball because that also encourages it to, to skid low along the floor. So like a forehand slice, Monica Nicolescu style? Yes, it is very Nicolescu-esque. Right. Um, and in fact, the photograph, I think, that... that uh, that my editors chose to accompany my piece was a picture of Fahey hitting that exactly that kind of forehand. Yes, and and I mean, again, just to get back to the name, it is called Real Tennis. It almost sounds like it's kind of dissing tennis. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, I think that's a, it predates it, doesn't it? I think that's a corruption of royal tennis, perhaps. Yes. Um, the Americans call it court tennis. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was these, these guys... Uh, were very entertaining company, very likable. They're very down to earth because the most you can earn in a perfect season of winning every tournament, which is what which is what the Rafael Nadal of real tennis has done in the last four years. A guy called who, well, a guy who rejoices in the exotic name of Camden Riviere. With a name like that, you almost have to play real tennis. Um, he uh, he's making twenty five thousand pounds or something a season for winning absolutely everything, and he's the only man in the sport who is a professional touring player as opposed to being a, a coach and pro who, who enters a few tournaments. Um, but it's, it's just brilliant to watch. And I think they're charging this year for, for the streaming of the final. The other thing I love about it is they're playing over three days with a rest day in between. So is it Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday? So you can sort of go away and, and, and you can consult your coaches and your experts like, as if you're playing a chess match. And then, and then work out how you're going to change your opening for the next next uh, next set. Brilliant! And this all happens, yeah, at the Queen's Club this week. And uh, because there's 15 different kinds of serves, right? <laughs> <laughs> so you can sort of go, you can go in and, and sort of rip up your tactics on Wednesday, and then come out come out with a completely different game plan on Thursday. Well, whenever I, mean, I if see, this was, if, it, if this could happen in tennis, it'd be brilliant. I mean, like you could have, have a one-off kind of um, challenge series between Federer and Nadal on some kind of um, on all four know, surfaces, what surface, what surface you choose, but or maybe on all three, yeah. <laughs> and then you know, and then you sort of prepare over a long period, and then you have um, tactical breaks in which you can sort of reset your your plans. It just sounds brilliant. I like it. Um, and uh, yeah, funnily enough, whenever I speak to the chief executive of the Queen's Club, uh, Andrew Stewart, he always says to me, "Well, the Rob Fahey is the Roger Federer of real tennis," and um, uh, yeah, he's going to be in action this week, so it'll be interesting. Go and have a look at Simon's piece. It's well worth it on the telegraph sport website and you'll get the full details the other one i wanted to mention just quickly before we go simon is is your weekly column you you are mm. is it weekly or is it bi-weekly i mean you you they're, they're pretty forensic accounts that you've been putting together this isn't just a slapping together your opinions tennis podcast style uh, this is this is proper <laughs> proper investigative and analytical journalism tell us what you're writing about Okay, well, we, we started a column <laughs> which rejoices in the name of Secret Service. Uh, and the concept is to do something that's sort of a bit under the skin of tennis. So I've done four of them so far. First one, I visited Sport Radar to talk about um, their defences against corruption. They're, the, they're the, the, um, the data supplier who have been engaged by the ITF to try and um, pinpoint potential instances of, of uh, betting irregularities and so on. Um, what else have I done? I did one on stats. The um, the fact that the stats are very underused in tennis, but there are some pretty well-informed people who think that this is going to be a big year for um, that 
element of the game to progress, particularly on the front of injuries, players using um, indicators of load to try and prevent themselves suffering the same kind of long layoffs that we've seen so so much in the last year. And then I did one on... Um, the most recent one was on the Davis Cup, followed by another one on, on the independent uh, review panel's report into how to deal with the betting problem, which is due to be released um, in a couple of days to the public. Mm. Wow, interesting stuff. Yeah, get your, get your teeth stuck into those, people. Uh, well worth a read. Simon's column out every week on the Telegraph Sport website. And just very finally, Simon, any Andy Murray news? Uh, you mentioned the Glasgow tournament. Oh, yeah, sorry, yes. Um, well, it was, it was actually um, BBC have, have been talking up the prospect of a possible Murray return in this challenger in Scotstoun in Glasgow um, next weekend. Um, I don't. I haven't had a chance to speak to Andy's agent, partly because he was running in the marathon today. Oh, um, which was a pretty good excuse um, for him, <laughs> and possibly for me too. Uh, but I think it would be quite a shock. Um, I'm imagining that the Murray Camp are probably still more likely to to target the um, Loughborough Challenger. Which is mid mid May, isn't mid it? Mid to late May, is the nineteenth yeah. or so. Yeah, like um, and it's it's basically being played the week before the French. It also creates this weird situation where Andy has to leave his name on the entry list for the French Open because he can't pull out of that and then enter the Loughborough Challenger if he intends right. to play that. So, um, <laughs> let's say for instance that he entered Loughborough and did well. Um, then he, he still wouldn't be able to announce that he wasn't going to play the French until he was knocked out. So you could almost get a situation a little, a little bit like, like the US Open where he's pulling out you know, a couple of days before, although it wouldn't be quite as um, sort of tumultuous in, in its effects because obviously he's not seeded um, anything like as high now as he was then. What was he, the, 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 the second seed? Yeah. Um, so that, that caused um, an absolute outcry over the fact that he derailed the possible Rafa Roger final. Um, which wouldn't happen now, but uh, the, the kind of the, the, the minutiae of tennis, once again, the complexity of it is, is quite bewildering. The more you, the more you sort of drill down, um, the more uh, odd things crop up. Yeah. So I think you, you feel you feel more likely to come back in in, in mid to late May. But uh, as you said, in many times in the past, if there's anybody that's difficult to read, it's Andy. Oh, Murray. sure, absolutely. I mean, look, I'm not ruling it out at all. No. Um, I, I said the other day because uh, I wrote a piece about Rafa, who, who spoke about having spoken to Andy on the phone and, t- and chatted about his treatments. Um, and I said, you know, he's not thought to be going to play in Glasgow, but goodness me, he keeps his cards close. And certainly, if you bump into Jamie Delgado or anybody like that and chat to them. The shutters come down pretty quickly if you try, try and squeeze any extra information out of them. <laughs> so, um, no one at the moment, except those who work with him, you know, in that very, very tightly knit inner team, knows what he's planning. No. No, well, we will wait and see, and we will look forward to that. Simon, uh, lovely to have you with us on the tennis podcast, as always. Yeah, good to speak to you.
Thank you very much. And uh, travel well. Where are you going next? It's uh, Madrid or... Oh, Glasgow, of course. Yeah, for uh, for Dan Evans' return, I imagine. Uh, And maybe Andy Murray playing. Mm. Who knows? Who knows? And then beyond that, what what is the French Open running like for you? Well, probably Rome. Um, Usually go to Rome rather than Madrid. It's more similar to the conditions um, that you get in Paris. Yeah. And... um, it's also, I think, personally, well, the, you, you probably won't like me saying this, uh, given uh, the fact that you, you're, uh, you have a day job at the Queen's tournament, but uh, I would say that if, if you're a tennis fan and, and you're weighing up a tournament to go to, the Rome Masters, to me, is, is one of the most spectacular shows of the yeah. year. Look, I mean, I, I, I take no offence to that at all. I agree. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a, and it is also, it's just got, it's another one with history, isn't it? And, and that's, that's well, history, but the visuals of the place are yeah. incredible. I mean, all those, all those statues built by Mussolini, which have a slightly unsavory political undertone, but they don't, they don't half look smart. Yeah. And you're just sitting on steps, aren't you watching these marble steps and that's fantastic. Yeah, I agree with you. Well, that is, sounds like a good uh, itinerary ahead. I hope you, uh, hope you enjoy all of those and we look forward to speaking to you soon, very soon. Okay. Cheers. So Simon Briggs with us here on the tennis podcast, a joy as always to have him with us. We'll have Catherine Whitaker back with us next week, of course, now that she's uh, gone and got her suntan, you know, she had to go and do all of that. You don't get to see it, of course, on, a, on an audio show like this, but go to our Instagram page, our uh, Twitter, our Facebook. We've got all of those if you want to, uh, to see what Catherine looks like with a suntan. She doesn't change much, uh, really, because uh, she's uh, very fair-skinned, like I am, of course. Uh, now, we also uh, love it if you leave us reviews on iTunes. We've got about 300 of them at the moment, and uh, we'd love to have some more. So if you uh, like what you're hearing, go and uh, leave us a review. Uh, always helps us, gets our ranking up. Tell us, tell everybody know about the Tennis Podcast. Tell your mates. Tell your Twitter followers, tell Facebook, tell everybody, uh, tell people on the bus. You know, you're just listening to it. You see somebody on the bus, you think, oh, that person looks like a tennis fan. I'm going to tell them all about the tennis podcast. Uh, Just make sure it's somebody who's not, um, you know, too mean looking is all I can say. Um, And we will be back next week. We've been brought to you in association with The Telegraph and with Eurosport. We are brought to you by our executive producers, Melanie Bowes, Triple S and TennisBalls.com. We are supported, of course, by our lovely mascot, Charlie the Ferret, who's been in Monte Carlo over the last week. And we are partnered with La Manga Club, who, of course, are the wonderful holiday destination in Spain, where Catherine and I holidayed last year and uh, worked on our games. And uh, hence why I'm slightly better than I used to be. And Catherine's much better than she used to be. We've got a, a special offer if you'd like to take advantage of their uh, of their wonderful facilities. 10% off. Uh, TPodcast18 is our code. Go to the La Manga Club website. You'll be able to get that. And we will be back with another edition of the show next week. 
a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.